Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to continue in this last vision, this last series of visions in the book. It's been uh, a lengthy and hopefully uh, worthwhile and beneficial study for all of us, but we have come to the end, and the vision that we're seeing here, starting in chapter 21, verse 1, all the way through chapter 22, verse 5, it'll be the final vision out of the series of sevens, and then there'll be some, uh, some things that we're going to read at the end of chapter 22, but this is the vision that we, we see, and it's an interesting picture for us. And like what we've seen before, there's a deep meaning to all of it. The last time I was here, I, I preached on the new heavens and the new earth, and then Jeff was kind to step in and minister to us last week from the Word of God, such a helpful, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my trash and everybody else's trash in my life, but thank you, Jeff for that ministry. And I don't think I didn't I wasn't able to fit in a Lord of the Rings reference, so I'll do better next time, I hope. But no, we're going to be in chapter 21. Let's look at verse 9. I'm going to read through verse 17 even though the vision continues on. We'll study it for the next several weeks. So would you follow along as I read God's word? Then came, this is Revelation 21:9, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at The gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and, and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it together? Father, I do thank you for your Word, and I thank you for allowing us to be together for the purpose of worshiping you and remembering your saving work through Christ. And now we long to be nourished by your word. And so would you move among us? Would you accomplish your purpose through the preaching, reading, and explaining of your word? Would you press it into our hearts as only you by your spirit can do? Would you soften our hearts and make our hearts ready to receive it? And would you be glorified in our response to it? Have your way with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not difficult to see that the remainder of the chapter has but one theme. 
the glorious final city of God. This vision paints a picture that we marvel to see, that we, we long to see with our own eyes, but it's one that we must also work to understand. Because this vision, like the rest of the book that we've been studying the past year, it holds symbolic significance to us. The patterns and the themes of this vision are familiar. They reflect Old Testament scriptures. They reflect Old Testament structures. Only the vision that we see here is far more grand, far more secure, and far more glorious than anything that we've seen in the past. And when this vision ends in chapter 22, God will finally make his way into the city, and that's where the visions of the book end. And it's fitting that the final image, the final vision in the the entire Bible is of God dwelling with his people in his city. What sin has corrupted, what what, um, our rebellion has marred, at the end of the book, God makes it clear to us that he is going to purify everything through Jesus Christ. So we've reached the final vision at the end of the book, and it's dominated by the city of God. And we're going to study this over the next three weeks, and then we'll wrap the whole study up at the end of June. But over the next three, three weeks, we're going to study five different things that we see in this section. Number one, we're going to look at the appearance of the city, and then the measurements of the city. And then we'll look at the adornment of the city, and then the interior of the city. And finally, we'll look at the presence of God in the city. And that will close out our study of the revelation. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 9 through 17, and let's look first at the appearance of the city. Now, my family and I, last week, we had just returned from a road trip. We had gone down to Galveston and gone on a cruise uh, to celebrate my son's graduation, and it's been a while since we've been on a road trip. I don't know how long it's been since you've been on a road trip, but there are certain things about a road trip that you, you look forward to, like coming to the end of a road trip. At the end of a long drive, you've been cramped, everybody's ready to get out, it's a little stuffy. It's always a relief when the the destination, the city that you're traveling to, finally comes into view. You know the journey's almost over because you've finally reached that destination. And as believers in Christ, we're all on a journey. This life is the journey. And at the end of our long travel, we will finally see the destination, the holy city of God. And it's been uh, painted, the pictures have been painted through literature and, and even in art to help us to try to grasp what this might look like. Now the section heading in your Bible most likely reads, The New Jerusalem. Most likely that's what it says in your Bible, the little section heading that tells you what we're studying. And this is the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. This is the city, this is the place that Jesus has been preparing for his people. And in the eternal state, it's the only city that's present. This is the ultimate and final city where believers from every nation and tribe and tongue will gather together to finally be with God. But we must recognize right from the start that the city being described is not a literal city. The angel makes it clear to John that he is describing the bride. 
He is describing the wife of the lamb. This city is symbolic of the church. This is a vision of the church triumphant at the end of the age. This is a vision of the church perfected, glorified, and adorned for her husband. This is the bride of Christ, no longer wrestling with the corruption of sin, no longer concerned about the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God radiating from us like a rare jewel, shining like a crystal. That's the picture that we see here. In this vision, we are not simply seeing a future city, we are seeing our own future. In this vision, we are seeing ourselves as we shall be, or as Joel Beakey puts it, we are not only spectators of this vision, but we are also the spectacle. We are not merely going to the celestial city, we are the celestial city. Back in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2, we just studied this a few weeks ago, when, when John saw the new heaven and the new earth coming down, he described it as a bride adorned or prepared for her husband. And that's what we're seeing in the remainder of this chapter. We're seeing this description We're zooming in on that picture of the bride and we're learning just how adorned she has been. And so that's what we're studying today and that's what we'll study for the next few weeks. But before we we get into too much of that, I want you to notice back in verse 9 that a familiar guide has returned. Look at verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And then he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So he describes the the bride, the wife of the Lamb, and he sees a city. But notice something here. We first met this angel all the way back in chapter 17. I've got a graphic to help us to see these two things side by side. When we first met this angel, he came to John and he described to John another symbolic city, the city of Babylon, which is a representation of unbelieving humanity. It's called the great prostitute. And notice the near word-for-word parallel between these two passages. In, In chapter 17, it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me. In chapter 19, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying... What did he say in chapter 17? Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. In chapter 21, it's come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Verse 3 in chapter 17, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And in chapter 21, verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, I put this up here. I don't do this very often, but I put it up there so you can see the, the near identical wording and the similarities in wording between what we saw in chapter 17 and the revelation of Babylon is meant to be contrasted alongside what we're seeing in chapter 21 and the revelation of the new Jerusalem. You can take that down. Thank you for putting that up there. As we read chapter 21, essentially we should remember chapter 17 and we should be able in our minds to compare these two visions. 
Through repetition, God is drawing our attention to the contrast between Babylon the Great, which represents the unbelieving world, and the New Jerusalem, which represents the glorified family of the redeemed. God wants us to have both cities in mind so that we can see the differences in their fate. This vision shows that the church will triumph over the world, that those faithful to Christ will indeed conquer. And I know sometimes it's hard to imagine that, especially when we just look up, see what's going on in the world around us. It looks as though the world is winning, that godless ideologies are taking over, that secularism is going to win in the end. But when we come to God's word and he reveals the end to us, we can take comfort as the family of God. Christ is still building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We've already seen in the last four chapters the prophesied end to Babylon. She was the great city. She had dominion over the kings of the earth in chapter 17, verse 18. She had no husband. She was the great harlot. She was in, in the end, she was destroyed by her own people, the beast and his followers. But in her time, she led the nations astray, and that's happening right now. And she leads the nations astray through her temptation to sin and idolatry. But at the end of chapter 17, she was judged by God. And the whole of Revelation 18, if you can remember this, was a long lament over the death of Babylon, the demise of Babylon. And the refrain is this, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. God has given us a picture to show us that the unbelieving world will fall. And here in chapter 21, we see the opposite. We see what happens for the people of God. We see a much different symbolic city. We see the bride of the Lamb. We see the holy city of the new Jerusalem. And where Babylon did not have a husband, this bride does have a husband. The church has a husband. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who loves us and has given his life for us. And he supplies the church, he supplies his bride with everything she needs, including the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness required to come into his presence. These two cities represent two very different human communities. One community is loyal to this world and the other is loyal to Christ. Both are present in the world today, but only one will be present in the future that God has planned. The power and might of Babylon can be seen today, but the full measure of Christ's beauty and uh, the church's beauty and power will not be evident until Christ returns. And yet even today we know according to the scriptures and according to what we see even in our own experience, that the unity of the body of Christ today and the faithfulness of the church and the love that we have for one another is meant to shine for all the world to see. They are going to know we are Christians by our love. And so we have this picture before us. And what we display today is not this perfect image. Can anybody amen that? What we display today as sinners, redeemed and yet still broken, is not this perfect image. We're still plagued by sin. We still speak when we should listen. We still don't love as deeply as we should. Sin is still present with us. What we display today is imperfect. It's marred by sin. 
And some of us have, have experienced the, the hard side of that, the ugly side of that, the painful side of that. Our unity is strained at times by sin. Ours or someone else's, like Jeff mentioned last week. Our faithfulness fails. Our love falls short of the goal. But when this vision becomes a reality, when the full weight of eternity comes to bear, all of our sinful flaws, all of our brokenness, all of that will be no more. And and the scriptures tell us here that on that day, the church will shine as a beautiful bride reflecting the glory of God. So let's look at this beautiful bride. Go back to verse 10. It says, And he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I've been privileged over the last, I don't know, several months to be very deeply involved in several beautiful and special weddings. Uh, Each of them have been special in their own way. But the picture of marriage, the picture of the wedding day is a uniquely beautiful event. Two people coming together, pledging to love one another, to be committed to one another, to serve one another for the rest of their lives. It's a beautiful thing. And there's only one image that God gives us in the scriptures that he says that my, my, my church is reflected in this, and that's marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. There's nothing in this world that more vividly portrays the love of Christ for his church than the union of a godly man to his loving wife. And in this vision, John is seeing the bride. He's seeing the wife of the lamb symbolically represented in this city. And it's a picture of us as we will be. As a a bride, we will enjoy personal, relational intimacy with Christ. That language is intentional, although it's important that we don't take that language too far. This is not about sensual intimacy. It's about personal, relational closeness with Christ. We will be in his presence. He will dwell among us and our eternal lives will be intertwined in ways that we can hardly imagine. That's what this picture is trying to get across to us. But make no mistake here. Our existence as the holy city of God is the result of his redeeming work, not ours. The city, this bride adorned, comes down out of heaven from God. Reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are his workmanship. Christians don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our status as the bride. The Bible tells us that we were bought with a price. The gospel is not, if you do these things, God will love you. If you clean yourself up and make yourself acceptable, then God will accept you and forgive you. That's not the gospel of scripture, although that is a message that's being preached all over the place. The gospel of scripture is very clear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to work our way to God. There's nothing we can do to commend ourselves to God. It's only by his mercy and his grace through the work of Christ that we can be forgiven and be grafted in to be part of the bride of Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God so that you can't boast about it for we are his workmanship, Ephesians, Paul tells us in Ephesians. We didn't earn our status as the bride. Our forgiveness is the result of his sacrificial love. But in this instance, we are called a holy city, which means that all of our sins will be cleared away. 
In fact, at this particular point, there is no guilt of sin that remains in us because at this stage in redemptive history, the Bible tells us that we will have undergone a change. Now, in Paul, I mean, uh, Mark was in 1 Corinthians 11 earlier. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15. And this begins in verse 51, although the whole of chapter 15 is telling the same story. It's just one logical argument after another. But here's what he tells us about the, the time leading up to this picture. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And the picture we're seeing here is after that has occurred. Because we will reflect the glory of God in a way that we never have before. And the fundamental character of this city as it's presented to us, the people of God, is that we shine at this stage with the glory of God. We talked about glory in our prayer meeting this morning. and In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying to the Father before he goes to the cross, and he, he asks the Father to glorify him because he's, he's glorified the Father. Now he's asking the Father to glorify him. He's asking the Father to give him the glory that they had before the world existed. This idea of glory is huge throughout Scripture. God's glory is described throughout the Bible, and in many cases, it's described using references to light. It's this shining brilliance of God, and that that picture is meant to describe to us, or at least to convey to us, something of the, the holiness of God, the purity of God, the awesome power and beauty of God. The Father's glory and Jesus' glory are described as having the intensity of the Son. When the glory of God descended upon the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament, it was something that the people couldn't even look at. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus pulled back the robes of his flesh to, to reveal his uh, eternal divine nature, there was, it was so bright, it was dazzling white and the men couldn't look at it. The glory of God is often described in that way. But in the Old Testament, the glory of God was most clearly associated with God's presence in the temple. Is that a picture that you're familiar with? But in this vision, God's glory will fill the entire city. It will fill all of his people who've been gathered together. In other words, he will be among us. He will dwell with us. We will be in his presence. In Revelation 22 and verse 5, if you look a little bit ahead, it'll tell us that um, in, in, in this eternal state, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. There's that radiance of God's glory will light all of uh, existence in eternity and for eternity. But this idea of glory is maybe a little bit hard for us to understand. I'm going to go back to that image of the wedding, the picture of the bride. When when a person, like a bride, enters into the sanctuary or into the chapel, and everybody stands, and all eyes are on her in this beautiful, dazzling dress, the impact that that has upon everyone around, that's, that's a way that we can understand glory. That's her glory. 
when she comes in, when a, a strikingly beautiful person walks into the room and everyone becomes immediately aware of them, that's their glory. It affects everyone. It changes the mood. And this is the impact of glory. This is the impact of God's glory. It doesn't just fill a room. It fills the whole of New Jerusalem. And we will be there with him. And we will be there in his presence. As the scripture tells us, we will see him as he is. We will see him face to face. And as more of this city comes into focus, as we continue to read and study over the next couple of weeks, we'll see that there are, are not just there are various gems, almost like a rainbow of precious gems and, and gleaming metals that adorn the city, but none of them shine with the same brilliance as the glory of God. It is this glory that will be reflected in us, and his glory will in some way be imparted to us. This is a picture of a glorious city. Look at verse 12. It says, It had great high walls with twelve gates, and, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then in verse 14, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. There's a very interesting picture coming to, to, together here. Now, in, in ancient cities, it, it's important to understand that high walls were a must. We do this too with our neighborhoods, with, with our, um, our, our communities. We put walls around them. Some of them are gated, and, and those things are in place for protection. They're in place for security. And it was even more important for ancient cities to have great high walls around them. It served to protect from invading armies that kept the people safe. But in this new city, the walls don't serve to keep evil out. And the reason we know that the walls aren't here to, to keep evil out is because all of the enemies of God at this point in the vision have been defeated, right? One by one, by, we saw them all fall. Babylon has fallen, the beast has fallen, the false prophet has fallen. All of the enemies of God have fallen. Evil has been abolished. All of the enemies have been cast into the lake of fire at this point. There's nothing left to fear. The, even the night, there's, there's not even going to be darkness. How many of y'all are afraid of the dark? Don't raise your hand. You're not even going to have to fear that. These walls aren't needed for protection. So the question is, why does this new city have this massive wall? Well, it is symbolic. It represents the city's invulnerability. And it reminds us of the difference between the paradise that was lost and the paradise that has been regained. I want you to think back in your minds to the Garden of Eden. When God created that garden, when God fashioned that garden, he put Adam and Eve into the garden along with all of the animals and all of the trees and all of the things that were going on there. There was no wall around the city or no wall around the garden. And Satan was allowed to find his way in. But this new city has no such vulnerability. It's so secure that God's people are free to live without fear, without anxiety, without any concern for temptation, without any concern for deceit. We will never need to look over our shoulders. We will never need to look around dark corners. We will never need to be on the lookout for a scam or worry if a friend might betray our trust. The pain of broken promises, the fear of being led astray, they don't exist in the city that is to come. 
And the city is open. Notice it has 12 gates, and these 12 gates are open. They're actually being guarded. At each gate stands an angel. These angels, I think in my mind, they they refer back to the Garden of Eden as well. These angels guard traffic in and out of the city, and they do this kind of as a throwback to the angel that guarded the way back into Eden for Adam and Eve. Do you remember that? God put a flaming, uh, an angel with a flaming sword so that they couldn't get back in. Well, there are, are 12 angels here, but they're not holding flaming swords anymore. We have access. They are standing silent in agreement to what God has done to allow us to move in and out of the place that he has made. They even give us access to the tree of life, which we'll look at in a few weeks. And each of the gates bears a name, the names of the 12 sons of Israel. And the names aren't listed for us here, but we know what this is. We know what this is referring to. They represent the children of God from the old covenant. And and when God gives us this picture of all of his people dwelling together with him in the city that he has made in the eternal state, he wants to make sure that we understand that the old covenant believers are there too. They represent the children of God in that old covenant, the, the 12 names of the patriarchs who inherited the promises from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were the fathers of God's chosen people. Their names were given to the 12 tribes of Israel and their names are etched in the new Jerusalem to show their significance in God's work in the world. And that means that those faithful Jews who trusted in the promises of God's forgiveness, those faithful Hebrews who refused to abandon the covenant promises given at Sinai, those faithful sons of Abraham whose hope of salvation from sin rested in God's promised Messiah, they make up part of the population of this glorious city. And through these 12 gates, men and women from all nations have access to one another and fellowship with God. But that's not all. Rounding out this picture, we learn that the city has 12 foundations. And that that sounds odd, especially for those of you who are builders. You get one foundation, and this would probably better be understood as 12 foundation stones. And upon each of these stones is etched another set of names. It's the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Foundations provide stability. Foundations provide structure and strength, and the names of the twelve are written on them. And this is an interesting idea. This is John, one of the twelve apostles, who's seeing this vision, and he doesn't point it out, but I'm certain that his name is one of the names written on the twelve foundations. The eternal city of God, here's the picture. The eternal city of God is filled with the presence of God. It is filled with the people of God from both the old and the new covenants. And the Apostle Paul wrote about this, although not in a a picturesque and symbolic way. He wrote about this in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 18, he said this, For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. By the way, you may have noticed the number 12 occurs multiple times here. There's 12 gates, there's 12 angels, there's 12 foundation stones, It's 12,000 stadia. There's this mention of 12. The number 12 is referenced 10 different times 
in chapter 21 and chapter 22, and that's not by accident. If you go back and you look at all the references to the number 12, and we've studied numerology along the way, numbers have significance. Number 6 has significance. The number 7 has significance. The number 3, the number 4, the number 10, the number 12. When you see the number 12 being referenced throughout the Revelation, it is identifying God with his people in a dwelling place. Every time. One of those things are there or all three of those things are present. The number never applies to Satan. It never applies to Satan's works and it never applies to Satan's helpers nor his followers. Twelve is the number that represents perfection and it is used exclusively to refer to God and his people in a dwelling place, which means that this city and all the references to the numbers of 12 and the the multiplication that adds up to 12,000 or 144, it means that this is the perfect dwelling place of God and his people. That's the picture. That's the symbol. No true believer will be left out. No believing Jew, no faithful Christian will be forgotten. The Old Testament people of God are united with the Christian church in perfection, in perfect unity. Within this massive city, there is room for all of God's redeemed children. And that's the picture that we get. But there's more. Let's look at verse 15. Let's look at the measurements of the city, and then we'll bring this to a close. It says, And the one who spoke with me, that's the the angel again, he had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls, and the, the city lies four square. That's reference to a cube. Its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So the numbers continue, and the shape of the city reflects what should be, for some of us, a recognizable blueprint. It, It forms a perfect cube, which is the shape of the Old Testament Holy of Holies, from Solomon's temple. Did you hear that? The picture that we get, this symbolic, eternal, beautiful picture of the church in its perfected, glorified state is representative of this Old Testament reference to the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. From 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 20, it says that the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. A pure golden cube. That was the place in Solomon's temple where God's presence dwelt on earth. It was also the place where God allowed for one man, the the chosen high priest, to come into his presence once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. And here in chapter 21, we're seeing that picture expanded out in a beautiful way. Verse 18 tells us that the entire city, this is in chapter 21, verse 18, the entire city was made of pure gold. And this symbolizes for us that God's dwelling place, the holy of holies, is now in the midst of his people and it's not relegated to a small room. All of us will have access to him. That's the picture. The holy of holies was this tiny window into what God had planned for eternity. And when this city is established and we are called to his presence, there will be no lots cast to see which one is going to go in as the high priest. 
There's not going to be any standing in line, no one-at-a-time access. We will all have access to God. We will all see his face. We will all be allowed to come into his presence. That's what this vision is symbolizing. The angel measures the city at 12,000 stadia in each direction. That represents 1,400 miles cubed. That's massive. Right? That's, the, that, that's the point. But I don't think that we're supposed to read that in literal terms. Like we're, we're trying to decide how far this is away from Dallas. Right? I mean, that's not the point. The point is all of these numbers coming together to show us their symbolic significance. This is a, a massive city fashioned as a perfect cube. And the point is to convey the symmetry and the perfection of the Holy of Holies expanded to unlimited proportions. In fact, 144 or 12,000 stadia, all of this is, is meant to show us the, 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 all of the old covenant saints and all of the new covenant saints, there's not going to be any problem. Everyone's going to have room and everyone's going to have access to God. All of the people from the old covenant and the new covenant are secure in the city where God dwells. That's the end for us, for the believer in Christ. So let me summarize all of that if I can. And I know there's going to be questions after, so we'll get into that, but. The holy city here, it's a description of the bride. It's a description of the church. This is a vision of the glorified church finally living in perfect union with God. All of God's people perfected and experiencing God's presence forever. The curse of sin is removed. Eden has been regained. God's people are no longer in exile because through Jesus Christ and through his substitutionary death on the cross, forgiveness and eternal life belong to all who believe. That's the picture we see. And there's more to come. But what do we do now? What do we say after all of that? Well, this is not the only book that John wrote. John wrote a series of letters. He wrote a gospel. But in that series of letters, he actually references what we should do, understanding that this glorious end is coming. We don't fully comprehend all of that. But because we know that glorious end is coming, what should we be doing now? How should we be living today? And this is coming from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, where here's what it says. John tells the church, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And here's the point. And everyone who, those, who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We look forward with longing and hope for the day when this city is our eternal home. But that hope is built on Christ and Christ alone. We are God's children now. Not because of our works, not because of our merits, but because of his grace and love. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the love that God has shown to us, that love stretches back to the foundation of the earth, we're told. The love that caused us to be born again, the love that opened our hearts to the good news of Jesus, the love that adopted us into God's family is also the love that will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. That's Philippians 3, 21. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I mean, I think this picture is symbolic for a reason. I don't know exactly what, and I don't think John knew exactly what it was going to look like. 
But the fact that we are God's children now is meant to motivate our faithfulness today. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't understand that that future glorious reality is coming and, and be complacent today. Purify yourself now. Live for God's glory now. Put off sin and be obedient to Christ now. God's children are meant to be motivated to be faithful today by what is to come. The purity that we will experience in the future is not something that we put off until he comes. We are to pursue it now. Unity in the body, love for one another, faithfulness to his word, boldness in evangelism. We aren't called to sit on our hands or or hide our gifts in the backyard just to keep them safe. We're to use our gifts and we're to use our time on earth wisely so that we can make much of Jesus. Brother or sister, it's one thing to to have this beautiful and glorious picture as a, a motivating hope for the future, but we're called to live in purity today as believers in Christ. That's what John is saying here. We are to invest our minds in God's word so that we can grow as his disciples. We are to give our time to the service of others so that we can show and share the love of Christ to our Christian siblings and to our unbelieving neighbors. And we pursue purity by the Spirit and the Word. We pursue purity as we follow and obey Christ. Not so that we can make Him love us, but because through Christ He already has. And so as this picture comes into focus and all the questions swirl, I understand that. But this picture is supposed to be a glorious, hope-filled reality. But don't let it keep us from being faithful to Christ in the little things today. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you that as we study this picture, as we study this vision, as we study this revelation, I thank you that you have shown us new things, glorious things. But Father, we have a responsibility today. Husbands are to love our wives. Fathers are to love and nurture our children. Wives are to respectfully submit to their husbands and and be a part of that nurturing of their children. And we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. And we are to love as we have been loved. We have been called to purity today. So don't let our focus be only on what is to come. But because we know what is to come, let us be faithful today. Would you accomplish that in us? Would you motivate us? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted of sin and righteousness and what is to come? And would you accomplish your purpose in us and through us for your sake? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.